companies and especially the advertising agent media agencies that understand the reality of attention have a once in a lifetime opportunity to make a killing hello and welcome to the media leader podcast i'm jack benjamin do i have your attention attention measurement is and has been one of the core topics at the heart of media over the past several years The simple questioning of established measurement tools by asking, are people even paying attention to the ads they are being served, has opened up a can of worms for an industry that is always intensely concerned with return on investment. I'm very pleased to be joined today by two titans of the attention economy. Mike Follett is Managing Director of Lumen Research and a contributor for the Media Leader, and Karen Nelson-Field is the founder and CEO of Amplified Intelligence and a professor of media and innovation at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's my pleasure to have both of them on the podcast today to discuss the positives and potential challenges of using attention for media and advertising. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, nice to be here. So why don't we just start with simply defining what we mean when we talk about attention? Because I often hear a lot of confusion from other media professionals over what attention really is. Is it measuring eyeballs on the screen? What about how ads resonate emotionally, if at all? Uh, Karen, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I actually look back and say that the definition has been defined long, long ago. You know, so the concept of attention, both in audio and in visual, has been defined. But what we're trying to work through at the moment is operationalization of that. So, you know, turning that abstract concept into measurable observations, which is exactly what we're trying to do. So, I take a different take on that. The definition's been around for a long time, which is when, you know, someone sort of focuses on one thing for a fleeting moment to understand something. And in the case of visual attention, that is when they look at it. In the case of audio attention, it's when they listen. Um, but again, I I know that people are struggling to understand what sits underneath that. Um, so that's mm. my take on it. Yeah, I think you're right, Karen. It is, sometimes you want things to be complicated, but in actual fact, in this case, it's really, really simple. <laughs> yeah. You know, attention is inherently selective. There is too much world out there for us to pick it, to put it all in our brains. You simply can't attend to the whole world. So we have developed um, through millions of years of evolution systems to filter out stuff and to allow us to focus on the important stuff and ignore the less important stuff. So attention is the process of prioritization so that you can attend to some things rather than others. Visually, just like Karen says, it's, it's about looking at things uh, uh, you know, and making sure you have foveal vision on the, on, on the things that matter. Sonically, or in terms of uh, audio attention, it's a bit more psychological. It's about this process of listening uh, and attending to. But in all of these instances, it's the process of focusing concentrating on something, ignoring other things. That's what we mean Mm. by attention. And it's actually even more complicated than that in that it's, well, perhaps not complicated, but there's an extra step in there, right, Mike? So the definition we agree to because we didn't make that up. So that's the what are we trying to measure. But then there's the why. So, you know, Mike and I have just talked about the how, which is around, you know, visual or non-biometric or proxy. But then there's the why. So a lot of what I've sensed recently is that people are confused because media measurement has very different use cases and very different 
you know, needs for the technology than creative, which is a lot more diagnostic. So there's actually multiple layers. Um, and I think um, when some of the hierarchies or the, the matrices come out around, you know, kind of keeping this nice and simple, people start to the penny will drop. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? I mean, there's, uh, as you mentioned, you know, optimizing attention for making a really creative ad that that grabs attention. Um, but but there's also this this other aspect of when you're planning media, you might want to put an ad in a place that that would naturally get the most attention. Yeah, I mean, the creative stuff is is interesting because you know we can both Mark and I can test ads in live platforms, social web, whatever, um, and tell you how much attention is being paid, but you know, creative is is very much around, you know, understanding how people are feeling and thinking and, you know, how their heart rate's going and, you know, what emotions they're feeling and all of that sort of and that's a completely different part of the ecosystem than, you know, sort of Mike and I are playing in, which is more around scalable measurement that makes change to gaps in volume that viewability leaves so it's just two different sides one's one's a lot more you know how did they look across the time of the ad in the in the course of the view and the other is how did they think and you know both mike and i will agree that you know we never went into this business to try and understand how people process cognitively and you know how individual humans think and you know that sample of 10 we're thinking Mm. sample of millions so it's a very different so if you think about attention again it's the what are we trying to achieve is the definition why are we trying to achieve this what are we you know why are we measuring this one is creative one is media um and and there are different technology solutions that fit under the those two things so i think when you know all of the i guess uh industry bodies kind of come to understanding all of that there'll be a matrix which shows how it all sort mm. of fits together yeah i think i think karen's right there the the, the definition of attention is disturbingly simple it's you know did people attend to it or not you know from a from a wide variety of things they could look at or listen to did they listen to that or or look at this that's the easy bit and that's nice to know that that definition of attention is simple and easy to understand what you do with that becomes more complicated um and the relationship between attention and cognition is very complicated uh, and isn't as easy to have a sort of simple pithy one-liner about and then like Karen, I think you're absolutely right, Karen, when you talk about the understanding of attention from a creative point of view versus a media point of view. They're both really, really interesting and legitimate questions, but they are different questions. And so I think sometimes while the definition of attention is really, really simple, you know, selective focusing of of attention on, on stimulus, the the next question, which is operationalizing it that becomes very confused because people are are using the concepts that they bring to creative testing for media and then they use the concepts they're using for media measurement on creative and it's you're asking the wrong question it it seems at at different times and that and that creates quite a lot of confusion but the outcomes are different too right mike so if you think about what parameters are delivered or what metrics are delivered you know, in media measurement, we're appending to a current ecosystem that is time bound. Whereas with creative, you don't use heart rate to append to reach. So it's a very different 
so there's this so that the outcomes are different unto themselves um so yeah so i know you asked a very simple question then but you got a very long answer sorry <laughs> no, that's a, it's a great answer i mean to sort of simplify it down a little bit how can media planners and buyers use attention to to lead to better ad effectiveness let's say i mean is is there proof that that attention leads to better effectiveness uh, yeah, tons and tons of proof about this, which, and again, it sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? Advertising is all about adverting attention from, you know, one thing onto another. And so if you can measure if the attention has gone from that one thing to another, it turns out that the things that get attention get more uh, uh, sales. So we've done lots and lots of work to understand the relationship between attention and memory, and then attention to advertising and sales, and then being able to build predictive models of that. I know that uh, the guys at Adelaide did a lot of work, but the queen of this really, I don't know, it's interesting you came to me. We've got lots of data here, but it's really Karen who's done uh, a load of work on this. I know, Karen, you've, you're speaking at Cannes soon on exactly this topic. Is that right? I am, but, uh, you know, I can't tell you too much because it, you won't otherwise <laughs> come, but it's a very interesting piece of work that I'm doing with Rob Breton and Peter Field and Orlando Wood. But what I wanted to add to that, Mike, is what's exciting for me, and I've literally just dropping a paper this week on this, is we're starting to move a lot more towards what I'm calling meaty proof. So, you know, for the first sort of five to six years, I think we've all kind of aligned attention to the value of what I call brand metrics or brand outcomes, which is often, you know, recall and brand lift and brand consideration and brand this and brand that. But the reality is it goes deeper than that. So I'm starting to see, and I'm sure Mike is as well, proof around profit and business metrics like cost of goods sold and cost of acquisition and, you know, just literally things that the CEO wants to hear or the CFO wants to hear versus just the CMO wants to hear. So I think we're at a point where you know, the metrics, particularly in media measurement, are so advanced that, you know, they do run deeper than than survey-based measure and they are starting to kind of tap on the shoulder of the CFOs and see profit, which is great. I think, I think what we've noticed, uh, I think both companies, uh, Jay, have noticed is that the infrastructure for measuring the impact of advertising has got better. We're living right just as we're living through a revolution in our understanding about attention, so too are we living through a revolution in understanding about the impact of, uh, of especially digital advertising. So there have been the, the cost of doing brand lift studies has come down dramatically in the last few years. Companies like Dynator and Sint and Lucid and Global Web of Index, lots of these companies are out there. They're all very, very good. And creating really simple and robust control and exposed groups allows you to, uh, and then appending attention prediction models to that data, um, allows you to do uh, really big brand lift studies to prove the impact of, uh, of attention really, really quickly. So that's, that's really good uh, there. The second thing is that improvements in... Uh, ironically, as cookies are dying, so the link to first-party data is getting better and better when it comes to clicks and conversions data for uh, uh, for performance advertisers. And so that those meaty 
impacts that that uh, uh, Karen was talking about are really easy for us to to prove now as well. The the, the link not just between attention and, and brand metrics, but also attention and click based and and and, and conversion based metrics mm. uh, uh, there. But then there's a third thing that seems to be happening as well. If last year was the year of attention, and now subsequent this year and subsequent years are going to be the sort of working out of that uh, those implications, this year certainly in Britain and I think in America as well is very definitely the year of retail media. Mm. As cookies are dying, so suddenly people have realised that companies like Walmart and Amazon and Tesco, and I'm sure in Australia, Karen, people like Bunnings and and and, and uh, the big supermarkets there realise they're sitting on tons and tons of first-party data. And what we've been able to do is link our attention predictions to the first-party uh, sales data that you get from retail media uh, there, and and so. On all three elements, on brand lift, on on the sort of more traditional performance metrics, and on this exciting new world of retail media, we're seeing time and again very, very strong correlations between the attention that we predict ads are getting and the outcomes that clients are seeing in market. Can you over-optimize for attention? I think you know, if I wanted to grab attention at the start of this podcast, for instance, I probably would have just yelled into the microphone and that probably would have woken everyone up, but no one would have enjoyed that. Um, is there a danger to focusing too closely on, on attention compared to other forms of measuring media? Look, I mean, what, what's interesting about that is attention is inherent of all the things that you just said. So in, attention is inherent of emotions and attention's inherent of sound and mindset and context. So I don't really understand the question other than to say what attention does is is it is literally it holds all the keys to all of the other parts of, you know, effectiveness in that sense. But if you can over-optimise towards it, if you're asking me does every ad need 10 or 20 Mm. seconds? No. And it's an interesting one because to this day, you know, looking at how time works in the early days, we talked about, you know, more active attention or more attention is, is gold, which is a good rule of thumb to have, but it's a lot more understood now. So for example, it depends on the campaign. So you might be able to do more with less. And I think that kind of is in a sense what you're asking, you know, can you over-optimize? You you don't need necessarily as much as you think. And when you understand how much you need, you can actually give back to humans and and not take as much of their time. So that that would be my answer. I, I think you're totally right on that, Karen. You know, that there is a, a general useful rule of thumb, which is uh, more attention is, is better, but that's just a rule of thumb. And crucially, I think I go back to this sort of development of the outcomes metrics, the, the lowering in cost of the brand lift studies, the improvements in the performance metrics, and now with retail media. Because by linking our attention predictions to those sorts of um, uh, data, you can start working out, well, how much attention do I need to deliver to achieve the result that I want to see in market? Attention is only ever a means to an end. The thing that really matters is is memory Mm. or money. Um, and our data uh, and our and our models should help you not just drive more memory and more money for your clients, but uh, in the most cost-effective way. Um, it isn't just about buying 
hundreds of ads and uh, and, and making sure that everyone is, is is glued to the screen, because that 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 while that's possible, it might be very expensive to do that. It might be too expensive to justify um, uh, given the return um, that you're seeing when it comes to the the memory or the money. So. In that sense, yeah, absolutely, you can over-optimize, and if that's what you mean. But I suppose it wouldn't be over-optimizing. You can over-buy. You, you'd be, you'd cease to be <laughs> optimizing because you'd have gone too far. That's what you, you uh, 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 that you mean. I was just going to say, um, Mike. There's an interesting other side to the concept of over-optimizing, and that is where AI can take. So, so I mean, we're in a different position because we have actual human data. But you know, you start to sort of look at. I guess, AI-only kind of metrics and you have this problem known as Goodhart's Law that is, you know, once you specify a metric that you want to optimise and, you know, optimise to outcomes or optimise to this or optimise to that, then actually it kind of loses the original being that it was supposed to do, lose its value for the proxy that you really care about. So, So there is kind of a whole area of concern with AI that it becomes a compounding error over time if it over-optimizes towards something that's not human, mm. for example. So, you know, there's there's that We're yet to be seen, but I'm very across Goodhart's law and, and when measures become the target, it ceases to become a good measure. Mm. I'm getting to uh, AI a little bit more because I am curious to hear a little bit more about uh, uh, how that might be affecting the work that you guys are doing. But Mike, you alluded earlier to the sort of cost uh, related to buying on attention. You know, if you wanted to get the most attention possible, you could buy everything, you know, uh, in an in a ideal world for some advertisers. But um, another cost is the cost of carbon. Can you talk a little bit about mm. how some of some recent efforts that um, Lumen has partnered with numerous agencies, I think Media Hub recently and, and Dentsu as well, uh, in terms of optimizing not just for attention, but also for sustainability practices. Um, yeah, so um, the first thing is to just take a step back to say what, just to make sure that everyone is clear as to what Lumen and I suppose uh, Amplified Intelligence does. Uh, is, uh, both companies, as far as I understand it, Karen, we have lots and lots of human attention data Mm-hmm. And then we observe regularities in that data and create predictive models of attention based on on all the millions of data points that each company has has connect collected. And one of the things that we Lumen has noticed in observing all our data is that when there are lots and lots of ads on the page, people don't tend to look at the each of the ads as much as when there is just one ad on the page. Uh, clutter and ads makes a really, really big difference for for how likely you are to look at the ads. And this is interesting because one ad might produce one unit of carbon. And if we're getting one second uh, of, of attention, that's one second per unit of carbon, I suppose. But when you've got six ads all firing at the same time, you don't get six seconds of attention. You still just really get one second of attention. So you get one sixth of the attention per ad, but you still have um, uh, the same amount of carbon. So in this case, six times the amount of carbon. We observed this and thought, well, perhaps if we could understand how much attention different ad units are getting and how much carbon they're producing, we could work out the carbon cost of attention. 
And it's been really good. We've been working with Dentsu and their suppliers, who are a, a, a French company called Actionable. And we've been working with um, Havas and with Media Hub and their suppliers, uh, Scope 3, to link our attention predictions to, the, to their carbon cost uh, predictions. And the results are really interesting. They're, they're, they, it shows that sites where there are fewer, better ads noticeable ads that people might actually um, actually look at those sites produce more attention for less carbon and that's good for the advertiser because people are actually looking at the ads it's good for the user because they uh, don't have as many ads to wade through people are often irritated by the sheer volume of ads and we know that reducing ad clutter can improve reader satisfaction with with, with sites um, it's good for the planet as well you know because it, you're you're using up less electricity and producing less carbon to deliver ads that that work the key challenge for us is making sure that it's also good for the publisher because no publisher is going to vote to to make less money for the benefit of the planet well, perhaps there are some well-meaning people who might do that, but most will go, no, I don't know, rationally maximise uh, things um, to, to make sure that I make money. So the, the challenge that we've been working with all of these agencies is to uh, increase the CPM, increase the cost of the media to offset, you know, to, to represent, you know, to use the attention data that we're, that we're getting to, to increase the CPMs uh, and therefore make it economically rational for these publishers to, to reduce the, the sheer number of ads on their sites. But it's kind of a win-win, right? So uh-huh. you, even if you do have slightly, I mean, you know, going through this with procurement, right, They, if you do actually spend slightly more, there's a benefit to the publisher. They might rationalise the amount of ads on throughout their offering but on top of that the end user which is the brand gets more attention for a less carbon like it's kind of a win-win because they have the same budget and everybody wins the world the the brand and the publisher yeah i really do think this is one of the few times where better information will improve market outcomes uh, and the market should reach a new equilibrium fewer better ads with better outcomes for advertisers better outcomes for for uh, readers and 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 consumers better outcomes for the, for the for the planet as as Karen said and if the cpms uh, increase better outcomes for the for the publishers is there well. any risk with um cpms rising that that some advertisers might be turned off i mean you do have to end up selling to them exactly there is a risk but this is this is the thing what what we're talking about is lots of advertisers have commissioned their agencies to go and get the lowest possible cpm driving down prices on the assumption that all of these evil publishers are skimming tons of value and 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 screwing over advertisers i tell you if you go to most publishers at the moment they do not look like they are rolling in money screwing over advertisers uh that is not my lived experience of going (laughs) around to, to these places instead what we should be doing is is saying well you can buy the cheapest but why not buy and or you could indeed going back to what we were talking about beforehand buy the highest attention and pay you know limitless amounts of money just for the highest amount of attention or you could bring these things together 
Use this attention data to work out where, where is the good stuff and be prepared to pay slightly higher um, premiums for the good stuff and where is the bad stuff and either cut that out of your budget entirely or reduce the CPMs that you're prepared to pay for, for the dross. There's probably some value in those crap ads. It just probably isn't as much as you're currently paying. And for the good stuff, you're probably getting a bargain, but you don't know you don't know, you know how much of a bargain you're getting. So this is why the data from likes of Lumen and, and, and Amplified Intelligence can really help you be a, a, a rational maximizer when it comes to your budget. Mm. Mike, you, you did mention at one point uh, in in the response the positives to the consumer about you know perhaps having fewer ads on the screen. I'm curious, you wrote, I believe, a, a piece for us around the Christmas period um, about a, quote, depressing reality of perpetual distraction that is especially true among young people, which is perhaps due in part to an overload of, of advertisements of that are all competing for people's attention alongside other forms of entertainment and media that is also competing for attention. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I must say that that that, that line is, is far too cogent and beautifully put to be mine. That's actually that something that Omar uh. Oaks, the editor, uh, <laughs> wrote. Uh, user. So that's not okay. actually my opinion, uh, beautifully expressed as it is. Um, so, But Karen, what, what, what do you reckon about that? Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure how depressing it is. It's it's a reality that we are perpetually distracted, but I don't know how depressing it is. We just have to work around, like we have to change the way we've been working and that's, you know, literally what we're trying to do is explain to people there is an upside here and there's certainly a window for for, for brands and agencies that are, I won't even say early adopters anymore because we're kind of, some way through it, but early leaders in attention will will get the upside because their competitors might not actually catch on for another year or so. And so, you know, now's the time to, to react. But I wouldn't say it's so depressing because there is such an upside for brands and such an upside for the globe and such an upside for effectiveness. But I think we can't change the way the user experience defines how much attention or distraction a human will pay. Can't do anything about that. So you just got to work with them. Karen, we're going to have to find something to disagree with. I know, it's shocking. I think there's two points to, to, to that. The first is, listen, I'm not sure that the, the modern world is any more or less distracting than the ancient world was. You go back to people like Samuel Johnson in you know, walking around London in the 1750s, talking about oh, all these bloody ads getting in the way, constantly assailing my vision and my, you know, my, my eyes and my ears. Uh, Lucretius talks about this in ancient Rome. I think it complaining about constantly being distracted is just something that people do uh it's part of the human condition and in actual fact if you just have to remember what attention is for attention is for keeping you alive and so the jungle um is is a pretty is a place with lots and lots of stimulus 
um, or the savannah. There's lots of things, that, and it's very important to have your wits about you and to, to be able to attend to things so that you can see dangers or spy opportunities. That's what attention is for, for any animal, not just humans, but for any animal. And so that means that we're constantly being assailed and we're constantly with stimulus and we're constantly taking decisions about what to look at and, and what to ignore. It was ever thus, and it will always be ever thus because that's what attention is for. So, on that side, I don't think it's a you know it's a depressing reality of being a of being a life form with a beginning, a middle, and an end that you have to attend to things. So there we are. The second point is is that it, not only is it inherent in who we are as as as, as creatures, but uh, it's probably always been like that since your human history. And then the third thing is that understanding this reality of distraction and attention. If you do understand that, then knowledge really is power. I'm mm -hmm. totally with Karen at the moment that to, to say that the companies and especially the advertising agent or media agencies that understand the reality of attention have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make a killing. If you know where the good stuff is and you know where the dross is, you can invest in the good stuff and potentially pay you know what the rest of the market thinks is over the odds but still get these attention bargains right now over time though the market while it's not economically rational at the moment it will become more economically rational prices will move as people start to see better results and we will begin to compete away these attention arbitrage opportunities but right now this is the golden moment to make a, a, an mm. absolute killing. And I think that's what's so, so exciting uh, uh, about this uh, this time. I and suppose the next to, to play years. devil's advocate because, uh, yes, you, you guys uh, refuse to disagree on this point. Um, from, from the consumer standpoint, purely, not thinking about how much money uh, advertisers could make through arbitrage and, and such, is, is it a little Promethean that to, to develop tools of we know exactly what you're looking at um, or we can at least predict based off of models exactly what you were likely to look at as a consumer um, to sort of hijack people's eyes, whether it's looking at display advertising uh, and out-of-home ads, etc. Um, it is using a level of sort of personal psychology and, and tapping into how people behaved in the jungle to sell ads ultimately well i think we'll come back to this because it brings or rather this brings us back to the role of creative ultimately so there's a there's a nice circle here um uh, jack and i and and i don't um karen i, I i'd be very interested to get your opinion on this because our model so we've recently you know we, we, we collect all this data we turn them into predictive models of attention the mathematics that we use is actually pretty simple it's regression models and statistics there are bits and bobs of ai you know and you know within there but mainly it's it's pretty simple well i'm far more complicated than i can understand but i'm, I'm told relatively <laughs> simple mathematics and we had um, the guys at PwC look at our models to say, could they recreate them and, and, and make sense of them? Are we, do the models make sense? And, and a couple of weeks ago, we, we released that, that data. And the guys at PwC said, yes, Lumen are doing what they say they do. And Lumen think that they can 
predict with 70% accuracy whether or not you're going to look at an ad or, or how long you're going to look at it for. Um, but that leaves at least 30%, sometimes more, sometimes less, of the, of the variation within their models that is unexplained. And that, we put that down to things like creative and targeting and time of day and day of week and you know all these other myriad uh, things. Our models are pretty bloody good at predicting, but they're not 100%. They couldn't be. It's philosophically impossible to imagine. I mean, you'd have to understand the whole of human existence to be able to predict with 100% accuracy what people are going to look at and, and, and for how long. And we certainly can't do that. We could we can make a pretty good stab at it, but there's still lots and lots of um, a, a, a variation there. So the, the, the route to mind control is, uh, we're, we're, we're not, not far along that uh, yet. And, and not only we're not going to do that, but we wouldn't want to do that, but it's impossible anyway. I mean, Karen, how about your stuff? I mean, is that is that something you're finding that your models can predict a lot, but not everything, because there's always a moment of human free will, which which you can't put into a model. Yeah, I mean, kind of similar, but a little bit different. But yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the creative does play a role, and I've been quite vocal to say that the platform plays the biggest role, and. You know, Mike's just described that to you by saying that the large majority is predictive of, you know, what he said was simple mathematics around some factors. But I think going back to what we're trying to do as well is, and, and you know, you know, Soren from Mars is amazing in this way. You would know that, Mike, is that he sort of says he wants to make sure that there's a really good value exchange. So hearing you kind of say, are we kind of stealing their attention and, you know, driving them down to the path of purchase, it is a little bit kind of you've got to call on the agencies, particularly the creative agencies, to say, how about you deliver us something that's interesting to us because then that prediction increases but also we have a better experience. So there's a value proposition that brands need to kind of look at. It's less only about making more sales but it's also about making happy people and the exchange for them is to build a good products that they buy and enjoy but b give them good content because otherwise there's a sea of yuck <laughs> yes well i started my career at, uh, at ddb uh with and, and paul feldwick who oh, yeah. is now um, he was a, a sort of emeritus head of the department, uh, the planning department, and he would say, "You have to remember how you know this is a very English thing to say. But you remember how how rude we are to turn up into people's front rooms uninvited with commercial messages." He said, "It's much better, better to, to to come bearing gifts." Yeah, earn you your attention and have a value exchange exactly like Karen is talking about. I will I will watch your ad and 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 give you some of my time if it's worth it. And and so that's one of the reasons why I thought it was so tremendously impolite to um not to have excellent creative. Karen, have there been any any gifts recently that you've noticed as really good examples of advertisements that drive good attention but but are also really well created. So I can't think of any I know you've written a few for us around the World Cup and around Christmas of ads that performed really well. I think um, 
so what we've found from our TV panel that we've put in in partnership with T-Vision, uh, who are the... I mean, you've got Karen and me on the line here. We are missing the third sort of titan of this, with, uh, which is Yan Lui, based in New York at, uh, at T-Vision. I think that I think you've got the... Those there are the three major players in, the, in this industry, and we all see the world in a very similar way. We've set up this panel in the UK uh, uh, with with T-Vision, which collects lots and lots of data about how people are watching TV. And from there, we've been able to see the ads that get a disproportionate amount of attention versus the norm. And over over the World Cup, because people were watching the, the, the TV very intently and they'd put their phones away, almost all the ads got lots more attention than, you know, a normal Tuesday night uh, uh, in front of the telly. But the ones that did best seemed to uh, combine a distinct story that made sense, a, a strong narrative with a, a simple message. Less really is more when it comes to gaining and holding attention. And then the other thing that seemed to make a big difference for us was uh, music. In the UK, Uber have uh, an absolutely stunning campaign at the moment. It's, very, in the moment. it's a very old-fashioned campaign. It's just a TV campaign that, that with, a, with, a, with great stories. But each of these stories has um, a, a amazing music. They've been using Finnish tango music and then Motown uh, hits from the 60s and 70s. And the, and the combination of the audio and the visual seems to be tremendously important in, in gaining and holding attention. You know, I think that's a good call. And I look at it a little bit more generalizable in that I can see, so rather than thinking about specific ads or brands, I think about categories. So typically there are categories that have the whole pass to do exactly what you just said compared to some categories that are fairly destined to be dry because of the nature of its product or its utility service or, you know, community service or whatever it might be. So I often look at it in that this is a typical category that will get more, but it's to your point, Mark, it's about how they then go around and have the creative freedom to kind of add, you know, unexpectedness and and emotion and kind of swings of happy, sad kind of, you know, no storytelling. Whereas, you know, something that you know, like a toothpaste, it's very hard to do that. <laughs> it's just well, hard. Well, you, 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 no, you're right as an observation, but it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy there, isn't it? So I, you know, I lived in the States for a while, and obviously one of the greatest um, ad, ads out there is, has been Geico. Yeah, which is the most boring product you could possibly have, and yep. has consistently been amazingly. Yep. We, I can remember Russell Davies, um, who used to be a planner at um, Wyden and Kennedy. Someone had come up to him once and said, um, "Oh, you've got it easy though, because you guys get to work on Nike, and Nike, everyone wants Nike." And he went, "Well, remember, Nikes are just <laughs> plimsolls. <laughs> There's nothing inherent in 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 a, in." a bit of plastic and a bit of cloth being interesting it's up to and i think both karen and i are talking about the power of creative to give you an unfair share of attention our companies can predict what you you, you ought to get on average and then the creative can go further than that it can also go less than that but it can go further than that to give you this unfair share and that's the sort of creative dividend or the the, the premium that you get from from having good creative but 
any human action is inherently interesting you know you know even here be gods um and understanding that any brief could become astonishing is a, a an important place to to start too often again going back to my my time working in in and actually making the ads too often you you put on some shackles even before you've got to the, the briefing stage saying well this is a tedious category and there's nothing we can do with it so well let's see let's see, see if we can make um something l less bad <laughs> than we were expecting uh that is usually a poor place to start if you're going to uh, uh, try and do something mm, yeah, amazing. Yeah, I think uh, John Haggerty uh, said at our Future Brands event uh, last month, basically, you know, Dyson made uh, hoovering a super exciting part of your day, right? Um, that, that that should be something that, that advertisers should strive for. You know, anything can be interesting. It's just rare, right? So so I totally agree with you. I mean, my first book was on emotions, coding and content diffusion. And, you know, after thousands and thousands of ads, everyone is, you know, it, we went through this 15 years ago when everyone wanted to go viral and everyone's like, well, let's just build a better creative and it will. But the reality is it's rare. And this is the beauty of what Mike and I do in that as much as they those ads are there, the reality is there are systematic regularities across the data and therefore it means it can be used as prediction in the context of media measurement taking it right back to where we started versus diagnosing creative oh very wise very wise karen because i think one has to be realistic about you know what is possible at all you know the uh you know, you you can you can occasionally get someone to swim across the English Channel, um, and if you do enough training, and you know your your ad could do the same with that. But your ad is never going to swim across the Atlantic, uh, and it's ludicrous to to even, and it's dangerous to even assume that. So, the understanding of knowing what is what is the norm allows you to a do better than that norm, but it does also set parameters for what's possible. Um, there is no point. Facebook is an astonishing and brilliant media platform, but it isn't TV. And so no matter how good your TV creative is, sticking TV creative onto uh, Facebook is a is a fool's errand uh, uh, there. And I know that Karen talks about the concept of sort of uh, attention elasticities, which we would totally subscribe to uh, there. Similarly, posters can can do an awful lot of good in a very short amount of time if you design them for that purpose in mind. So um, it isn't simply about how long you look at these things for um, uh, and, 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 and having a single currency of attention across different media is not is not entirely fair because you do always have to take into account the the way in which those media work to deliver the ends uh, in which is memories or, or money mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day i think we have time for about one more question i, I want to know i mean mike you, you do bring up the the idea of a currency um um but looking ahead let's say you know in the, within the next year within the next five years um mike you brought up sort of currency, uh, which is a whole can of worms, I'm aware. And, and Karen, you, you also brought up earlier how um, AI might might change things. Um, I'm curious what you see 
the attention economy moving toward just uh, over the next sort of short and long time spans. Karen can start with you. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one because I actually do agree that I think we're moving towards a non-currency currency era right now. Um, which means that the measurement marketplace will be a lot more open to, you know, measurement that fills gaps in your planning workflows. So for me, from an attention economics perspective, I think there'll be a division between human and non-human or human and synthetic, I call it. I think that's coming and I think one will go down the quality metrics route and one will be human. <laughs> I think that's happening. But I also think that to Mike's point, you know, the 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 larger ground truth data you get, the more valuable the predictions will be around human attention. And, you know, what will happen is um, feedback loops will begin, which is where kind of we're headed with AI. So interesting. I think I just think that it'll start to settle in about 12 months time and people will understand what they're dealing with and make choices around the types of signals they want to fill the gaps at impression level. And I think, you know, again, I think it'll, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I well, that vision of the future is something that I certainly agree with. I think we will see that these predictive models of attention will grow in use, but the predictions have to be based on human data. And there are three companies in the world that produce that human data. There's um, T-Vision, there's Amplified Intelligence, and there's Lumen. And so the models that are based on that data are going to be much, much better and are already proven to be much, much better than uh, more assumptive models uh, that are, are equally trying to predict attention but don't have any basic human data upon which to build their models. So that's the first thing to, to see. We are really still just discovering this undiscovered continent of attention, this America. We can see the outlines of this whole new way of thinking. And up until recently, I think Karen and I have been very keen to sort of normalize this and say actually this fits in with everything that you know already it fits into the programmatic infrastructures that we're already under that we're already, you're already familiar with and that's a good rhetorical position to take because it, it, it says that this attention stuff isn't actually it's just more of the same it's something that you understand and can can act on and it's not something to be afraid of and i think we're both right in that we're both uh, saying these reassuring things, to, uh, and, and that's both correct. But as we collect more and more data, we are uncovering new things that we didn't know beforehand, especially the connection between uh, attention and action and attention and cognition. And I strongly believe that it's very, very hard to predict where we'll be in five or ten years because... That there are there are new revolutions that will happen and new understandings that that will ha that will happen with we've come to the world uh, this this new sort of like I say terra incognita of, of attention and we're interpreting it in the light of everything that we know already and there's lots of familiarities and there's lots that we understand but as we discover and explore this continent a bit more there'll be there'll be 
wholly new things to to uncover as well that will radically change the way that we're um that we're thinking about things and so on and that's like poetic way of thinking about this at the end but that the first phase of this attention revolution is nearly complete but it isn't it's only the first phase and there's still tons more to learn and there's still tons more to discover in the next few years and, and well, decades. Well, Mike, Karen, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what you guys do discover uh, in the coming years. Thank you guys so much for for joining the podcast. Uh, Karen, especially, I, I know you know all the way from Australia that with the time difference, uh, it was uh, very um, generous of your time to, to, to come and speak. So thank you both. My pleasure. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.